welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And today I have a, an extra special treat for you. So uh, I have a couple special guests here. Um, in the first place, we have someone who's not a stranger to the show. He's, he's been on multiple times. Uh, my friend, Gary. Welcome back, Gary Abernest. Thank you, Dale. Awesome. And we have a new guest, someone who's here for the first time. Uh, someone I've, I've been on a show with. He's now the new host of Skeptics and Seekers, uh, David Russell. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. an honor. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so what I want to do, just uh, the today's topic is going to be basically about uh, a case against naturalism. How does apol Christian apologetics relate to the case against naturalism? But just before we get into that, uh, very briefly, I want to turn it over to the guests uh, just to sort of introduce themselves. Um, so in David Russell's case, he can introduce us as to who he is, and uh, Gary will give us an update on his take. So yeah, D David, sort of starting with you, um, why don't you introduce us, introduce us to who you are? Well, yeah, I'm the host of uh, Skeptics and Seekers, as you mentioned earlier, but I'm also the host of uh, Proselytize or Apostatize, which is a uh, debate channel, kind of like the Unbelievable Show. And it's also uh, a critique channel. We critique videos and stuff. So, uh, yeah, we, we have a, a, lot of, a lot of fun with it and a lot of fun with Skeptics and Seekers. I also uh, have a Facebook page called the Virginia Apologetics Union. And yeah, that's pretty much my intro. I try to keep up with all of it and I'm full-time student. So it's kind of funny. I just did a paper on the resurrection and I, my textbook was Gary's book. So oh, nice. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. So yeah, so I, I'm going to fanboy a bit here, Gary. I, I got to fanboy a little bit. Your ministry, your works have greatly impacted my faith. And there's just no, no words to express that, you know, how honored I am to be sitting here with one of my favorite teachers. <laughs> well, no honor to it, but thank you. Uh, the ministry part is what interests me. I'm very, very glad that anything is being used by people and meeting needs across the board, whether it's believer, seeker, critic, yeah, whatever. It's, it's kind of funny, Gary, my paper they, they only gave me 1,500 words to actually compress a argument on the resurrection. And I got some points taken off because I went way over. <laughs> There's just no way I could, com you know, compact a, a, a resurrection argument in 1,500 words. Why don't, why don't you do a mini magnum opus and turn in like a volume? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would I'd probably gotten even more taken off for that. You said, I'm, I'm curious, you said you used a book, one of my resurrection books. Which one did you yeah. use? The one that you and uh, Mike did together, uh, The Case, oh, for, the case for the Resurrection. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I also use Mike's work. I mean, I got all these books up here. Uh, some of yours are up there. Mike's well, are up there. I see uh, Mike. Uh, I can tell by the backs from way back here. The first three. <laughs> yep. <I don't> <laughs> There you go. Uh, now look, Dale. Cut Yours is right here, and no, I got the, more the over here. Side. On the other side, I can tell the first ones yep. are. Um, yep. The first yep. one from, from where I'm sitting, the ones are um, Tom, uh, Mike. Um, don't tell me that one's Bauckham. The next Bauckham. one. Now that's there's two that look like that. Is that the Craig? That's one of the two. That's the one of the Craig and Moreland volumes, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, after that, yes, I start losing. I, I can't see clearly from back here. Oh. That's the first four. No, no worries. I'm, I'm just impressed that you had that 
good eyesight uh, to see those books because I can't even see them. So, um, but yeah, but Gary, yeah, just sort of turning to you quickly, obviously the audience knows who you are and that sort of thing. Um, but why don't you just sort of update us on, on your new projects and you know, how is that Magnus Opus coming? Slowly. <laughs> it's because it's because I tell too many other people I will do things and I try to judge everything by ministry value reaching people I've had I've been asked to do seven blurbs for books in the last couple weeks last few weeks uh yeah seven books I have a major well I did that NDE debate for Blackwell a couple years ago, I'm being asked to write a similar one for another new book on mind-body dualism, and all the it in the the book is a who's who of philosophers, and then I'm doing the, as they call it, the lone empirical chapter on NDEs, and then I've got back to the MO, and the MO is uh, it's. It was finished in June, but there's a lot of editing to do. I mean, a lot of editing. And I've got an outline for the first volume. And the first volume on evidence alone looks like 1,500 pages. So. All right. So you're keeping busy then. So, <laughs> All right. Cool. So, yeah, at this point, let's get straight into the interview proper. Um, so with this, uh, I'm going to just sort of throw it out there very quickly uh starting with you gary um if we're talking about okay the christian case of apologetics in response to naturalism what exactly do we mean by naturalism in your opinion did, did you ask me that dale yeah we'll, we'll start with you i'm having i'm having a li little bit low volume i've got mine as high as i can get but um <clears throat> okay if you want to really quick definition. Uh, naturalism is the view that asserts that the natural world is all there is, and there's no supernatural impeding into this world. So philosophical and scientific views uh, put a lot of emphasis on probably science first, maybe, maybe philosophy second, but big players would also be anthropology, uh, sociology, and so on. But especially philosophy and science are huge. And they deny that they, by and large, they deny that they take a priori positions against the supernatural. But you know, if you start talking like that, you're going to get a pretty quick slap in one way or another and then some kind of going off on it. So, I mean, that, that's fine. We go off too on the other side. So, um, but anyway, the natural world is all there is or what we know, it's usually added. What we know, we know via science and its methods. Okay, all right. Uh, and just turning to you, David, Ira, out of curiosity, would you concur with that general definition of naturalism or? Oh yeah, you think it's oh yeah. Do you think it's important that we should get more specific at all, or is yeah? No, I, I think I think that that sums it up really well. Actually, yeah, I mean, I'd use the same same definition. Awesome. 
All right. All right. All right. Cool. So uh, at this point, I want to start talking about, well, okay, what are specific evidences or arguments that Christians can use when trying to tackle naturalism? Um, so let's start with the obvious place is uh, arguments for general theism. Uh, as Gary knows, that that's where I sort of started out, you know, started things like the cosmological argument or uh, the teleological argument, stuff, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I just want to throw it open to first to, to you, Gary, and what do you make of, of arguments like these? Do you think it's useful to start with a case for general theism uh, and maybe convert, you know, your friend Anthony Blue uh, kind of converted to deism at one point? Um, or should we start with Christian-specific apologetics? I think that's a matter of your audience or what you're, what you're after. I'm kind of known for being uh, an evidentialist in my apologetics, so I would prefer if somebody said, okay, let's start, dive in, where do you want to go? Especially if they're shorter time because arguing a full-blown view to God and then going to evidences where the classicists, the classical apologists become evidentialists once they get the first step done. There's two-steppers, evidentialists are one-steppers. Um, I would prefer to go to either the resurrection or near-death experiences. Um, near-death experiences, because it's empirical, it's hard-hitting, it's in and out quickly, I think the argument patterns are very similar to, to intelligent design arguments. They hit high teleology, but with, and, and with a lot of empirical data, over 300 now, over 300, I think probably we're getting a lot higher than that now, 300 evidential near-death cases, many of which in the dozens are reported during the presence, and we have to say measurable, because who knows what goes on that the machines can't pick up, but in the presence of measurable flat brain, flat heart, or general anesthesia. Now, I don't, I don't like the second category as much. I don't think it's quite as reliable as flat brain, flat heart, but general anesthesia is not the kind of anesthesia like where you get a tooth pulled and you can later tell what some of the conversation was in the room. General anesthesia is what happens when you have open heart surgery. I'm going to ask you just to save the, we have a question on NDEs specifically coming up. So uh, we have a question on NDEs coming up. So uh, if you don't mind, I'll just say like, hang on to that for, for a couple yeah, of it, But I'll also say, Dale, that I'm, uh, if we, if there's time, I don't mean just necessarily in this program, but I mean, anytime I, I don't, shy away from arguments for God's existence. I think there are guys who do a lot better job than I do, uh, namely Bill Craig, J.P. Moreland, and a host of others. But I like uh, the Kalam argument. I like intelligent design. That might be my favorite because I tend to be an empiricist, um, not totally, but uh, an empiricist with rational overtones. Uh, and also, I think the moral argument has moved back into prominence lately via uh, Dave Baggett, one of our own professors, who's now at uh, Houston Baptist, and also Paul Copan. Uh, so I like those three arguments. I like any of those. But 
one one comment, and I'll pass the torch. Um, when I say Indies, if you think about the classic naturalists in the 20th century, there were four major British naturalists, at least uh, Russell, Ayer, Mackey, and Flew. Flew being called the greatest because that was toward the end when he was the only living one. But Russell, and you can get this in the others, but Russell said that the two uh, bulwarks upon which um, uh, naturalism is based would be the denial of God's existence and the denial of afterlife. That was Russell's one-two punch. No God, no afterlife. So I think when I'm doing NDEs, I'm not only doing a little bit of resurrection because you're talking about afterlife, you're talking about background for after resurrection, but also it is one of those two Russellarian, can we say that? Uh, hallmarks, meaning no God, no afterlife. Gotcha, perfect, yeah. Just sort of As being a Russell, I'll let you go with that one. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> My last name's Russell. There you go. So, yeah. You awesome. that one. That's good. So, uh, Mr. Russell, uh, yes, sir. You, yeah, maybe do you want to give sort of your take on, on this? What do you, I know well, you did a, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, we did, we did the, the five use uh, of apologetics. Uh, and, you know, I took the cumulative case, and that's because I look at things like a puzzle. You know, I, I start where the person is, you know, or where the, where the conversation starts. So yeah, I think you can you can do both. I think the natural arguments are are amazing. I think they they give us a view that you know we have better answers that explain reality. So I think that they're very strong, they're very powerful. But it all depends on the format, right? It all depends on who you're talking to, and that that's why I think it's good to have that accumulative case method to be kind of familiar with it. So you know you're not beholden the priority at all. So you deal with the person, you know, as the questions come. And that's what I try to specialize in is like relational apologetics is really trying to get to know the person, hear, hear their concerns and present my apologetic that way. So. Yeah. I think, yeah. Just, uh, I know I'm the host, but just to sort of give my own take, I, I agree hundred percent with you guys uh, on this cumulative approach and taking the person where they're at so you know obviously Gary is great at that you know he, he helped me out for about 10 years and he took me where I was at and, and dealt with my questions there but I've had to learn sort of the hard way my brother Keith is an agnostic and you know I've been trying to to witness to him through my cosmological argument he, he's just not interested I can't get him to, to sit down but uh, for some reason, intelligent design has really taken a hold of it. He's buying like books like crazy. So I've sort of seen well, God, this is what God is using and that he's interested in. So help him with that, take him where he's at. So yeah, I just wanted to, to throw that in there. I think you guys are absolutely right. Getting a little bit more specific then, I, I want to sort of ask about specific evidences from modern day miracle healings or prayer studies and how this might relate to making a case against naturalism. And for this one, I think I'll start with you, David, if you want to give your take on those. On miracle claims? Yeah, man, I, I think that you got to investigate each claim. I, I don't think you can just broad brush it because we've had a pretty bad history of, of televangelists, uh, you know, aping the, the practices of of Christianity. So I, I, 
I think you got to investigate. And if, and if you're able to conclude that the probability is more like, yeah, hey, this is, this is supernatural and you can make an argument out of it, then absolutely it goes against naturalism. All right. And, and Gary, I know you have a, a lot to say on this sort of thing. Um, what do you make of, of that type of evidence? Yeah, actually, guys, I just, the last MO chapter I did for volume one was whether we can argue that Jesus was a miracle worker, not counting the resurrection, and then jumping forward from the excellent claims. I mean, so much so that the that the Marcus Borgs and and other other skeptics almost unanimously allowed that Jesus was at least a healer and an exorcist. That would take some explanation. But then many of the folks jumped from Jesus's non-resurrection miracles up to the present. And I would say the two volumes by Keener. Now, one issue, and Craig would say this, is that a lot of his issues, a lot of his uh, cases are anecdotal, but he's got, well, he's got dozens of, of verified claims, including pre and post MRI, CAT scans, x-rays. Besides him, there's a couple other books. Um, Kasdorf's book, The Miracles, he was a uh, Mayo Clinic uh, physician with an MD, PhD, did a book on measurable miracles, and also a British uh, medical doctor called, uh, named Gardner, who did, uh, has a book called, uh, uh, the exact title is something like a, a, a physician investigates miracles. But guys, I just happen to have a book here behind me. I wouldn't have gotten up and walked away here, but this might be, oh, oh by the way, um, Lee Strobel's book on miracles has some great interviews with some verified cases that are super intriguing with backup. But Lee put me onto this one. I'll hold it up. This one is Testing Prayer, the subtitle is Science and Healing. It is by Candy Gunther Brown. Now, all I will say is she does an incredibly detailed example uh, of going through double-blind prayer, uh, well-known double-blind prayer uh, cases that worked and that have been written up in peer-reviewed medical journals. But here's what's so interesting about this book. Let me tell you, this could take just one sentence. Candy Gunther Brown has a PhD from Harvard. The book is published by Harvard University Press. And the two recommendations on the back of the book are by, a, at least when the book came out, a present and former professor at, Oxford, at Harvard Medical School. So it's Candy Harvard, two reviewers, two praisers, Harvard Press, Harvard. You know it's not going to be a dorky kind of, oh, yeah, you Christians are always doing this kind of stuff book. And it is excellent. So I would say the two by Keener, Gardner, Kasdorf, and especially this new one by Brown are really worth looking at. Out of curiosity, for, and this this is a question for for both of you or either of you. Um, do do you have any like uh, maybe specific examples that you think are really powerful that you'd like to to mention? Or? David, if you got one or two, go ahead. I don't I don't have any off the top of my head. Okay, well yeah. here's here's some of the ones in in um, Keener's book. 
one that sticks in my mind is a surgeon. It might have been the orthopedic surgeon, not positive, but a child was having surgery or just about to have surgery on a club foot. Now, you know, when you ask skeptics, what's a present day miracle that might catch your attention? They would go, well, I'm, it's so often that they give this answer. It's like, well, what I would really like to see is a finger or a limb that grows back, something that grows back. By the way, there are some grows back stories in um, Keener. But one of the interesting ones that comes to mind was this child had a club foot. We know what a club foot is, you know, a, a, a very hard bone, I don't want to say claw, a ball at the foot. And they need to open the foot, to open the, the, the bone. I'm sure I'm doing a very poor job explaining this, but open that bone up so there can be a foot and the child can walk. And the surgeon said, I was there while a minister was praying for the foot. And I guess you could say the surgeon cheated, quote unquote, ha ha, kept their eyes open during the prayer. And they said, right during the prayer, I watched the foot open and obviously the child didn't need surgery. There's many other cases, um, many, many other cases. One where uh, a male was a couple states away in a retreat, a weekend retreat, broke his leg. The break was bad enough. Now, I mean, how often do you hear this happening? My recollection, I could be wrong on any bit of this, but my recollection is the break was bad enough that they kept him in the hospital for that night or maybe the next day. I mean, that's pretty bad. And they set it in a cast, but the fellow had to go back home a state or two away and take the x-rays and show his medical doctor the x-rays. And I think he got sent to a specialist. But the guy said, hey, no offense, but your bone was not broken. He said, well, how would you know? He said, well, look, I'm looking at the x-rays and there's no evidence of a break. Plus there's not the normal tissue damage around what you would have from a recent break. And so they ordered the x-rays from the hospital a state or two away. And the doctor rescinded and said, yep, that's your leg. And there's a break there. I, I can't understand. I don't, I can't explain it. So there's a number of those with pre and post testing, checking. I mean, I mean many. Enough that after a while you think, you want another one? You want another one? You want another one? How many do you guys need? And then you got these double blind prayer tests that Candy and, and Lee Strobel and others have uh, talked about. Uh, just more cases than we need right now. And by the way, a number of people would say, well, we know that positive thinking can be a certain, do a certain amount of healing, change your thinking, cognitive therapy. And that's true. Totally, totally true. And that could account for some of Jesus' healings. Absolutely. Change your thinking. You change all kinds of things. However, the two fantastic prayer were double blind. The two prayer tests were double blind, meaning 
you could say, hey, I'm feeling better today. Maybe I'm being prayed for and feel better. But you could also say, being a typical human being, I'm feeling lousy today. I'm probably not being prayed for. And you are one of the ones being prayed for. It's double blind. Nobody knows who's being prayed for and who isn't. And, and one particular test, the heart patients that were prayed for by name with no details about the person, just the prayers had a name, they got statistically better. And that's the key statistically better in 21 out of 26 monitored categories. So you can poo-poo any of the stuff you want, but what do you do when there's data? Then you keep poo-pooing and you kind of start looking silly after a while. One, one thing um, that I found interesting when I sort of uh, researched a, a blog and was looking at Craig Keener's book specifically, um, and it's interesting from a Protestant perspective, our miracle sites like Lourdes, um, I'm sort of curious, I found that there are some interesting cases that do seem to be genuine. And given the rigorous criteria that the, the Catholic Church administers to verify them. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious for both you and David, uh, what do you guys think of, of miracle sites like Lourdes? Um, is that problematic from a Protestant perspective? And do you think there are any cases there that are convincing at all? I'll let you go first. I'll let you go first this time. Yeah, I no, got the What? No, no. <laughs> I, I went first last time. <laughs> yeah, like Gary. Oh, I was gonna I was gonna say the opposite. I've been taking all the, the time here, so I was saying <laughs> it's you all go good, first, David. No, it's all good. Well, uh, Dale, I am so far from like you know universalistic or anybody this or liberal this. I'm just not there. But I could care less whose name is over the door of the institution. Oh, that was a Catholic church where the guy was healed. Yeah, what's your point? What's your point? Um, you could even say there's cases like this in India among Hindus. Fine, bring them on. I mean, that's great because from a Christian viewpoint, there's general uh, revelation and natural theology the, way, the same way there could be specific. And in scripture, there are healings that take place among non-Jews. For example, Naaman in the Old Testament. Uh, how about in Jesus's? This is a great one for me. Jesus goes to towns, and it, it says, it often says, he goes to a town, and everybody flocked out to see him. Now, he's not going to say, hey, I know some of you are in a lot of pain. Just cool that I got an hour sermon for you, and then I'll start healing. He would start healing and then he would, quote, unquote, earn the right to be heard. So he's healing, and he's getting attention. He did not stop in those towns and say, are you a believer? Okay, put your arm out. Let's look at it. Let, let's work, look, look at your foot. Are you not a believer? Get out of here. I'm not interested in you. Jesus, it, it, the texts often say he healed everybody who came out. Okay, we can quibble. Oh, yeah, he missed these four people over in the corner. Okay, great. I get that. But he didn't qualify between whether they were believers or unbelievers or non-Christian Jews or Christian Jews. That would basically be his audience, I would think. But there were a lot of foreigners in that area of Palestine, north of Galilee, north of where Jesus was born. And 
I'm sure he came across a bunch of them. In fact, we're even told a few. He didn't ask questions. He healed. And you could say, well, yeah, but that was a Christian healer. What if it's a Hindu healer? Hey, I'm open. I'll end with this. C.S. Lewis said that when he became a Christian, he thought one of his duties was going to be to explain away all non-Christian miracle cases. And he says, then he realized this is a big world from a Christian viewpoint, even God's in charge of a lot, like everything. And he just didn't have to do it. And I agree. We don't have to disprove the others. By the way, I, I asked Keener, what would you do if another volume came out with uh, 100 cases of healing by Hindus among Hindus? And he said, well, we would broaden our thesis or we would try to specify our thesis, but that doesn't change the cases. But it does make it kind of hard for naturalism if they're true healings. So just some thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, Gary. Uh, I think uh, God knows what people need. Uh, you know, so I, I don't think his healings and stuff are going to be uh, relegated to a, a single denomination or sect. I think that he does what it takes to uh, get that message out. And I, I mean, we have cases of Muslim men having dreams of Jesus. I mean, it, it's, it's wild, man. I mean, there's no, I, I don't put, I don't put a, a limit on God when it comes to this stuff either. So that's kind of like where I stand. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. To, I, I remember Nabil even mentioning, right. When Nabil's mm -hmm. case and that sort of thing. So yeah, just, just so, to quickly sort of give my take, I'm 100% on the same page as what you and Gary are saying. Um, yeah, and, and Dale, just real quick, I, I interviewed a, uh, a uh, missionary from, from Pakistan, and uh, one of my big questions was, how in a Muslim country, how did you get, uh, uh, you know, how did you get Jesus? You know, how did you get there? Mm -hmm. And that was one of his, his things was he did, he did uh, have a dream, and his parents felt that you know, uh, that Christianity was true, you know, and it just went from there. Very supernatural kind of instant. I think it does pose a big problem for naturalism. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. Yeah, dreams are very important for Muslims, more important than we understand in the West. They, they even think that the soul separates from the body when you're asleep and that sort of thing. So very powerful. So. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, on my end, so I was just going to say, it's it's important not to get confused. So, uh, you know, I, I know that skeptics, like uh, someone that we're all familiar with, uh, David Johnson, we, I think we should start like a survival group. We've, we've all debated David Johnson. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, you know, it's important that we understand there are different purposes for why God does miracles. It's, it's not always to authenticate a religious message. Sometimes he doing miracles of compassion. You can heal an atheist, like you can heal a Hindu or, or Buddhist or something like that. So uh, that's the only point I wanted to add is be careful that we're not just conflating every miraculous act as being the, for the same reason or something like that. So, all right, cool. Uh, if I could kick in with a real, real quick one. Yeah. Many, if not most definitions of miracles, first of all, people often uh, bounce off David Hume. A miracle um, is an event that breaks the law of nature, brought about by God or a supernatural agent. Then, of course, Hume rejects any of those, at least 
highly improbable, depending on how you read Hume's epistemology. But but um, he that that part about uh, performed by God or supernatural agent. Many many people, uh, Swinburne, uh, I know I do. I uh, the the majority I think say for a religious message, for some sort of religious message. And I agree with what David said and what you were saying too, Dale. I don't think we can fancy ourselves so smart that we know what God's deal in this might be and why a Hindu could be allowed to heal a Hindu. We don't know who's seeking, what context it's in, what might happen later. The person's saying, oh, well, God did something. Then they check it out. And maybe they find out that Krishna, let's say they love Krishna. Krishna, according to most Hindu scholars, I understand from a quote I have, uh, Hindu scholars, unlike Jesus, where the Jesus mythers are, like Bart Ehrman says, they don't have positions in any universities or accredited universities, colleges, or seminaries. Um, maybe the, maybe the, uh, the uh, Hindu person or in that situation, maybe he does some checking and finds out that if Krishna lived, our earliest copy, the Bhagavad Gita, has been said to be 4,200 years after the fact. A lot happens to things in 4,200 years. So what if, the, what if that miracle, um, a, Hindu, a Hindu for a Hindu, just makes a person search and they end up going, whoa, Bart Ehrman allows eyewitness data for Jesus and the earliest proclamation of the resurrection dates before Paul's conversion at plus two to three years after the cross. And Krishna's 4,200 years? Whoa, my ears are open. We just don't know the religious messaging that can come through a miracle because we don't know the mind of God. So I'm open, and I think that's justified. Awesome. All right. All right. So with that said, I'm going to move into something that I know Gary is going to like speaking about. So uh, near-death experiences and the evidence from that. Um, uh, as Gary knows, I, I just interviewed Dr. Bruce Grayson, who's uh, sort of an expert on, on that front. But yeah, um, starting with you, um, I think I started with David first last time. So I'll start with you first this time, Gary. Um, what, what do you make of the evidence from near-death experiences and also post-death communications? Uh, can we use this against naturalism? Right. Well, there are at least three categories of data that might be called near or post-death phenomena. I prefer the near-death category because, number one, it gets so close to death. You could argue that if, if, okay, if you have cases, and there are dozens, if you have cases of perceived machine revealed, flat heart, flat brain. And when I say when I say machine, you don't have to have a machine anymore to tell this because I say by machine definitions, but if a person has a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, so it's a specific species of NDEs. If you have a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, you are brain dead in an estimated 10 to 30 seconds. The, the experiment of which I'm most familiar with, medical experiment, 
said 14.5 seconds. I don't mean this isn't a 10 to 30 and then of course someone's got 10 minutes. Not like that at all. We're talking seconds. And oh, by the way, Dale, the, the most recent source I've seen on this just looked last night was a Canadian uh, neurologist or neurological, I don't know if he was an MD or a PhD from um, uh, University of Montreal and I believe McGill too, but I'm not positive. Um, anyway, so if you've got somebody reporting something 30 minutes after a known cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, that means the heart's not working by definition, the brain stops. And if you report something, well, let's say, let's say 100 yards away, let's say you're on the seventh floor of the hospital and you report your family in a waiting room on the second floor of the hospital, that's still a way. But a lot of skeptics like the stuff in the room, just in the room. So in the room, outside the room, indies in the blind, indies. It, I could give a, I'd give five categories. But the other two categories, Dale, that I work less with, are deathbed visions, people who not who don't have NDEs per se, but things happen, sometimes verifiable that they see in a hospital room with people around them, and other people have seen before. Um, so deathbed visions, and the last one, post what I would call post-death visions, goes by their names, post-death visions, where the most typical case is a spouse buries their spouse often that day. And this is an actual case from one of my PhD students. And that night, dad is at home in his bedroom they buried mom that day. I mean, she's dead, dead. This is not, you know, she's embalmed into the ground. And this is not uh, near death. And he looks up and his wife's standing at the bottom of the foot of the bed. No evidence. In this case, no evidence. Now, some of them are pretty highly evidenced. No evidence. But I ask my student who's doing a second doctor's degree, I asked my student, your dad's a pretty straightforward Baptist pastor, isn't he? Yep. And he thinks he saw your mom, right? Yep. But he's prejudiced and he'd like to see your mom, isn't he? Yep. Any evidence? Nope. All right. Even in a non-evidential case, what do you do with that? He said, I don't think you could talk dad out of believing that mom was there. And usually the post-death ones, they're real fast. They're usually seconds and they're like this, especially if it's like a car accident or you weren't with the person when they died, a hunting accident and you weren't expecting it. And the person says almost the message is eerily the same. It's want to say goodbye. Don't worry about me. I am doing fine. And the living person says, no, 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 don't go. They're gone that quick. No, 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 gone. And that was what, the, what it was with his mother. She was gone. So if you're hallucinating, it doesn't prove anything. But why would all these be so incredibly short, sometimes with evidence, when if you're hallucinating, keep your hallucination going a little longer. Come on. Don't make it stop in five seconds. Anyway, I'd say those three. Um, near death, deathbed visions, and post-death where the person is dead, dead uh, appearances. Gotcha. I think uh, just before I turn it to David, I think Gail Allison had a- 
I, Dale, we must we must believe in ESP. I was going to raise the Dale Allison point too. Yeah, being a skeptic, and he's sure. I've talked to him about it. He's sure that happened, and there are other cases in his family too. But he's sure about that woman who they just buried. Yep. Awesome. All right. So, so David, yeah, I'm sort of curious. Uh, even more curious what your takes. I have no idea where where do you stand on NDEs and the evidence from that. Well, you know, I, I, it's kind of hard to pinpoint because I still think there's a lot to this world that we just don't know enough about uh, to really conclude one way or another. I, I did notice in your interview with uh, uh, Grayson uh, that, uh, you know, these things do match the culture of the, the people. And maybe you guys can speak to that and, and help me in my skepticism there. And, you know, like, and then, then I, I noticed you did put a, a part in about reincarnation, you know, what about people that make those type of claims, you know, and then are able to, uh, uh, you know, cite where they're from, who their parents were, they never even met these people, and you're talking about little kids doing stuff like this. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's very interesting to me, and, and I haven't landed yet on it. Uh, I think it's very interesting, and I, yeah, yeah, I'm just not there a hundred percent yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. David raises an excellent point, and I have to admit, it, it causes me doubt. I, I don't see the NDE evidence as very strong. I do think it's more probable than not. But so, starting with his first issue here is, well, NDEs, the experiences themselves, do seem to be heavily influenced by your prior cultural beliefs or religious beliefs and that sort of thing, and the way we interpret these. So how do, how do we as Christians make sense, if, if they are true, how do we as Christians make sense of that? Um, how could that be consistent with a- hey, Dale, can I, can I ask you a question? I'm not sure I heard you right. I'm really curious after all the discussions we've had. Yeah. Did you say you think NDEs are probable but not super probable? Yeah, I would probably say about 70 to 75, 75%. The best cases? Uh, that's sort of, because, because of sort of some of the issues that came, came up and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, um, I don't know, how, how probable are you out of curiosity? Is it like- well, let, let, me make a, let me make a contrast, Dale, with something we've discussed several times, I'm sure you discuss on your podcast. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't want to give a specific number, but if you if you were okay giving a number, where would you be on the shroud? Now, don't forget, I'm not, I'm not changing the subject. I make I'm going to make a contrast here with NDEs. Mm -hmm. So with the shroud, uh, so where I'm at currently, where I'm at currently is probably going to be high 70s to low 80s. Um, and you put NDEs where? Uh, I would say it's somewhere like. 70 to 75 percent a little lower than the shroud right yeah okay well I've, this doesn't prove anything it just that things are strange right there's a lot of evaluating in the world and our our percentages are subjective when people ask me about the shroud i'll say teasingly it depends okay two two books two co-authored books with one of the scientists well, the spokesman for the group of scientists who did the investigation in 78, Ken Stevenson. And I tell people on the shroud, it depends on what side of the bed I got up in the morning, if the sun's shining and where the probability is, ha ha. 
So I might put the shroud at 80, 85, I might. I would say NDEs are easily higher than that. That's just a contrast. I, I think where people who, and, and, and for the viewers, Dale, I'll say this on your behalf, for people who didn't know Dale years ago, Dale didn't start here. Dale started on the skeptical side and worked himself up. He didn't come at it as somebody who conceded the resurrection and conceded NDEs and just said, yeah, 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 I love it. He, he worked up the other way. But I think that's an interesting contrast between where you put the shroud and where I put the shroud, where you put NDEs, where I put NDEs. It's fun to evaluate evidence that way. Yeah, yeah, interesting. All right, um, but, but yeah, so like, Outside of that, though, like answering David's question, like what do we make of the the cultural reflection of these NDEs? Like how do, how do Christians make sense of that if if these are veridical experiences of the afterlife? Um, why are they giving us conflicting data about what the afterlife is like? Dale, yeah, can I ask you one more question? Oh, I'm I'm just asking as the host, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, this is just the same thing, same subject. Sure. If you took all three of those categories, NDEs, deathbed visions, post-death post appearances, where would your overall percentage be for that category, that threefold category, that at least some of these obtain evidentially? What would your percentage be for a combination of the three? Um, so, so I'm not sure what the third category is. But with the post-death communications, I've never done like a proper assessment where I've assigned a probability. Right. Um, so I'm just sort of speaking out of my my rumps. Sure. But, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I guess that would be lower than the NDEs, just because I know more about that. So it's I don't know. But I mean, would the looking at three would looking at three increase your where you are for NDEs alone or not really increase that percentage? Uh, so, so tell me again what number three was. Is that if, if, you were, if you were doing NDEs plus deathbed visions like uh, the famous research book on that is um, Carlos Osis and Erlander Haraldson at the hour of death, um, where they investigated a thousand cases, 600 of them uh, Indian and most of those Hindu, by the way, that's deathbed. And then the post-death, especially the evidential ones, what I'm saying is if you put all the best case, let's just say you could theoretically put the best cases from all three categories together, would, they, would the percentage still be mid-70s to low-80s? Or do you think if you put all three kinds of phenomena together, best cases, your percentage would be higher than low-80s? Um, I, I think it's possible that with the the category post-death communications, if I did a actual assessment on it and really looked at the evidence uh, and went through my method of looking at it three times and evaluating it, it, it could go up. I'm, yeah. not sure this, I'm not sure the second category would do anything just because I'm not sh exactly sure what that is. The, the deathbed visions, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't. Okay, that, that's good. I didn't mean to get you off. I just wondered... David, Dale and I used to do this percentage thing for years. We would do percentages. And like every phone call, Dale would start, not everyone, but many phone calls he would start with. And we would go for an hour or two for years. And Dale would say, hey, listen, I've rethought this thing on this. 
and I'm either up on this or down on this one. And we'd start with these percentages and, and they're subjective, mm -hmm. but that helped us to know where the other person was. Does that make, yeah. does that help? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, when I was doing my, my studies, I, every evidence that I contributed, so I used Bayes' theorem to kind of put these, all these various pieces of the puzzle together to arrive at my final result. But uh, yeah, the, these are subjective probabilities. And I would kind of assess the evidences three times and see, okay, this time I've assigned 65, this time I can see David doesn't care. He's getting bored. No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm listening. Um, you know, Dale, for the, for the record, I remember, David, I remember when Dale was, I don't mean once or twice, I mean for a good part of our years of talking, he was below 50-50 on the resurrection. True, Dale? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. There was even a point, yeah, where I thought it was in, improbable and stuff, so. Yeah, yeah. anyway, a lot of fun. Yeah, right, I, I did, I, you know, I think one of the biggest things when I got into apologetics, probably about 11 years ago now, uh, that was one of the first things I ran to was getting to know the Bible, you know, the historicity of the Bible, because it was just so fascinating to me. So I, I, I think I've always been up on the resurrection, that, you know, just a fun fact, but <laughs> I've always uh, held to that. Yeah, pretty, you know, I never had... I didn't have as much doubt as, as Dale may have. <laughs> no, no, I, I had, to go back to my 10 years straight of doubt and 10 more years of off and on doubt. Dale and I would have been very comparable, only I was there for 20 years total. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, but in this incident that I've told many times about whether I considered becoming a Buddhist, People often say stuff like that. And you go, how old are you? And you go, oh, 15. Oh, that doesn't count. You know, but when I, when I really consider becoming a Buddhist, it was post-PhD. Oh, wow. So, but, but I'll tell you guys one thing. One time at a professional society meeting, I sat around in a circle with, oh, six of the best known, all published name philosophers. Now, I won't say they were believers, but they had a variety of views, and they wouldn't just concede what I even wanted to do. And I would say, well, guys, help me out here. What would you do with the cosmological argument? What kind? All right. Where do you put the Kalam? And somebody would say, do we have to do this? I said, well, you could really help me. How likely do you think it is on a scale of, uh, you know, one to 100? which is, you know, you could do it in fractions and get 8.3 and you could say one to one to 10. Um, and we went around the circle for about an hour and we did Kalam, intelligent design, moral argument, ontological argument. And not all the percentages were very complimentary. These guys were, could be fairly skeptical in a lot of things, but we're talking six or eight published big name philosophers theists and the percentages were really interesting i would say 80s and even some 90s were not rare on matters of natural revelation i don't even think we did ndes um i think we did classical arguments for god and um there were some and then somebody surprised you everybody would be going oh that one's like Maybe the feeling in the room is 
I mean, the circle of bets 85, and somebody would surprise you, a big-name guy, and he'd go, oh, no, 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 dude, I'm putting that in. I'm putting the ontological argument in 95, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So it was, you're right, Dale, they're subjective. But they do tell you where people are, and when these are guys who have studied it and evaluate the evidence, I think that's really cool. I, it doesn't prove anything. I'd like to hear where Graham Oppie is on this. So that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. Like, I, I, I run into so much. Um, we're getting so off topic. So I apologize to David Russell. So just very, very quickly then. The point about the probability. So, so yeah, these are subjective probabilities. And this is the number one objection I, I get uh, over on the boards from skeptics and that sort of thing. Look, first of all, in decision theory, that allows for subjective probabilities. We, we do this unconsciously all the time. It's all that matters is, well, are my subjective probabilities and yours, maybe they're different, but are they within what I call this reasonableness range? Can I present objective reasons for why I'm assigning this? And at that point, that's all we need. I think my, my argument will kick in and God will prevent undue confusion and we can make decisions based on on these probabilities, even though they're subjective. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, just, just sort of finishing off this, this last quick question about this interpretational thing. So I'm, I'm wondering about um, NDEs. So, you know, like there are different interpretations that are given and they do seem to reflect other cultures or other religious things. So is that a problem for the Christian worldview per se? Um, and also, what about this? What about evidence for reincarnation that you mentioned in your book, uh, Beyond Death? Uh, David mentioned that. Is, is that a problem for a Christian worldview, or are we able to take on board that evidence as well? Yeah, that's a big, that's a long list of things there. Um, uh, I totally admit social biases and societal reading into NDE and other near-death, post-death phenomena. We're all prejudiced. We all wear glasses unequivocally. But I know those are true. I may give you one example in the famous At the Hour of Death book, which I already referred to. Uh, Americans claim to see females more frequently than males in pre and post death phenomena. Indians from, from India, most of whom were Hindus, the female count was way lower. And I find that to be a difficult thing to explain by other than sociological standards. So I'm okay with all that. I'm okay with any kind of interpretation, but this comment, if you stick to the hardcore empirical data, I don't buy ungrounded interpretations, Christian or non-Christian. So I, I would equally tell somebody who said, I'm religion X, and I had a near-death experience, and I met one of my people, often just an angel, and the other traditions. But 
they said I was okay and I would be back here when I die. Or the Christian who says, I met Jesus. And he said, it's not my time yet, but I'll be back here when I die. I'm equally critical of both. I can be very kind. I don't just take off on them, but I don't give those things any kind of evidential standing. And someone could say, kind of an angry naturalist. By the way, I've got a debate here by a naturalist who's debating on the resurrection, not me, not debating me, but, and he says to his debater, he says, by the way, I'm not one of those angry naturalists. And he's a naturalist. So that was cool. But oftentimes, one of those comebacks is, yeah, well, I bet you love the hell cases, right? Bet you love the hell cases because that fits your worldview. Actually, I find them amusing, but no, I don't think they're of any evidential value. So uh, interpretations of NDEs, Hindu, Christian, hell, non-hell, um, I don't buy them unless there is empirical data. The empirical data is virtually always this worldly. For example, if you look down on your body and you see something that you can report while you have no measurable brain or heart, and again, I say measurable, if you measured it, it would be gone, but not because you have a machine, but because you've had a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation and it's more than 30 seconds. Um, and that's a standard that's allowed in medicine. Every time I inquire the specialists, they say, yes, it's, it's, no, we're not saying you're never going to have an anomaly, but yes, that's accepted. That's the kind I take. And when you, and when they tell you what they see, oh, I saw something two floors away. I saw something in my home one mile away. And they tell you as soon as they come back and you check it out before there's a room, room for the thing to spread. That's what I look for. But by definition, there's no empirical test for I saw an angel. I saw, I saw Shiva. I saw Jesus. I went to hell. I can listen to the testimony. Some of them um, are highly intriguing, um, but I don't think they're evidential. So those things don't bother me one bit. I listen to them, but what if my neighbor said to me, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm a such and such. And they went into a long explanation of what they believe and what they think is well-founded. I'd say, thank you. In fact, one of them did, um, not terribly long ago. And I would say, thank you. I'm glad to know more. But I don't take it evidentially. But neither would I take the Christians who said I was with Jesus for five minutes after I died. I don't value that. So I listen. I evaluate. But I'm only looking for the hard empirical things. Kind of long, probably longer than you wanted, Dale. But no, that's, no, where I, that's where I am in that. I think there's a huge distinction to make between empirical and non-empirical data, whether it fits or doesn't fit the Christian worldview. Excellent. All right, perfect. So, so with the last 10 minutes, I'm going to skip ahead because, and I'm going to start with you, David, uh, on this one. Because you, you mentioned the resurrection was something for you going back to the beginning. That was always strong evidence to you. So that maybe do you want to just sort of give your, your take on the, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and, and why you think it's 
so powerful and, and that sort of thing? Well, you know, I think it's the defining feature of our faith. So I, I, I gave considerable amount of time to it. So uh, I, I use this, almost the same approach as Gary. I mean, it's nothing new. <laughs> um, Are you studying as a Christian or as a non-believer? What, when, I, when I studied it, yeah. I, was, I was a believer already. Oh. Yeah. I, but it, it's, it's kind of my story here is that, you know, I went to a, when I, when I was uh, quote unquote saved, I went to a very uh, charismatic background, very charismatic church that quickly spiraled into like a word of faith church. Okay. So there was no intellectual side of Christianity at all. There was, you, you know, it was just, you know, name it, claim it. I mean, you, you got all that sort of stuff in there. Uh, fundamentalists out the wazoo. Uh, and even one of the biggest reasons I probably am not as into miracles and stuff is because of what I experienced there. Kind of like made me disenchanted with it. However, the resurrection was always a big one that, you know, caught my attention. But in this, in this, you know, in this battle that I had uh, with doubt as I was coming to the end of being part of that charismatic movement, my father died. Mm -hmm. And I uh, went down and my cousin who was an atheist asked me, hey, why should, why should I have faith? And I'm telling you, buddy, it, we had this big, long, drawn out debate and talk. And I went away with more questions than I had answers to, you know, I, I I was in a serious stage of doubt. So when I got into apologetics, see, because a friend had slipped me a uh, book called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. So I opened that up and I read the first chapter. Then this was before my dad died. I read the first chapter and I put it down. I was like, man, my head's hurting. Right. So, but I was like, wow, there is an intellectual side of Christianity. And, you know, uh, I think that's, you know, that started my journey really is, is when my dad died, that, that, that whole battle with my, my cousin and then just diving into the resurrection arguments and stuff like that. I mean, that was one of the first things that came up and you can't, you can't talk about the resurrection without hearing Gary's voice you know, or, or hearing Gary's name, you know, and, and Mike Lacona. So, I mean, I, I, I was sitting there and I was eating up, like I was eating up a lot of books in a month and I was just examining everything and, and looking into it. And I already had some research skills cause I already had an associates in theology <laughs> from the charismatic school. At least I did learn something there, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, you know, my, my, my general case is, is a lot like Gary's. I, I, I do put more emphasis on the empty tomb, I think. Uh, I do think that's a, you know, that's, that's one that we look over a little too much. Mm -hmm. Excellent. You know, I mean, yeah. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, and, and Gary, maybe uh, I'll just turn it to you. I know you, you've been on the show specifically, the whole show talking about the resurrection, but yeah, maybe if you just want to give sort of your, your take for a different angle. Um, the res the evidence for the resurrection do you think that this can be used as an argument uh to prove god against naturalism rather than christianity specifically so for, for example the mcgrews use this in the blackwell companion not even like just proving the resurrection like the way i did first i proved god then i proved the resurrection is a miracle they're doing the the other way around where it's okay through the resurrection we can prove that god exists 
do you think there's merit to looking at it from that direction at all? Yes, because I haven't asked Tim uh, McGrew or Lydia, but <clears throat> I take it Tim is an evidentialist. Uh, he's a one-stepper, and that's why he does that. And there's a there's a, a host of reasons. I teach a PhD course in apologetic methodology, and I'm telling you, I could care less what view my students take. We get all kinds. Um, I've got a guy who owes me a paper here in the next week, and he said to me recently in an email, I'm going to do my position paper on fideism because I've been influenced by Kierkegaard um, and uh, he's been, he's been uh, influenced by some of the apologists who use uh, Pascalian. I don't mean the wager. Well, you could use the wager, but that's not what I'm referring to. He uses... Um, existential and some real heart-tugging evidence. That's where he wants to come from. That's fantastic. But I tell them, I think the best part about the one step, here's how you get God. If you think of the tele, if you think of the teleological argument, think of ID. ID is a detailed empirical argument that gets blamed all the time because you guys are really trying to prove God and you know it. Well, whatever their answer is to that. Empirical data in the ID can argue for God. I think empirical data and evidentialism, be it in ease. I've got a book right here, right next to me. I could grab it, but it's a guy who argues, and he's not the only one. He argues that in argue God, worldview, and heaven. And he's a very sophisticated philosopher. Um, Peter Kraft argues that for longing for God, God afterlife. So I think, I, I think to use evidences and say God comes along with the deal is not rare. But I think the reason you get there from resurrection slash NDEs is because, like Bertrand Russell, if afterlife is a deal breaker for naturalists, not as big as God's existence, but it's second place, it's the second biggest, you get NDEs and you get resurrection, you're doing an, an empirical argument, empirical both scientifically and historically, so that's, that's empiricism, you know, ep, uh, epistemically, you get empiricism tier one and empiricism tier two, as in social science history. And um, the result could still be that God's behind this empirical data. And I think that is true of NDEs. I think it's true of ID. That's why I like that argument best for God. And and so that's why I'm a one-stepper. And there's a lot of other guys. You you raised McGrews. I, I, I haven't asked him, so I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that's where he's coming from. So I think you do get God in the deal if you pull it off the right way. Excellent. All right. So one, one final question for, for both of you quickly. So starting with you, David, R. On, on the resurrection, I've asked Gary this the last time he was on. So um, I'm just sort of curious, when you evaluate the evidence for the resurrection, uh, so you, you mentioned the empty tomb is very important. Do, do you assess each of the pieces individually and, and you think that certain pieces, so like the appearance to the women or the appearance to 
Paul individually can warrant that the resurrection is true, or is it a cumulative case? So it's the appearance to I think, Paul. It's, a, I think it's a cumulative case. Okay. I don't think you could just rely on just one one piece of evidence. I think you, you do need a, a case, a cumulative case. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. But believe it or not. Quick answer. Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not. So I, I agree and disagree with you, just, just if you're interested in my sort of take. So sure. I came to faith, I think the appearance to be 12. I think that every fact, uh, appearance of the women, appearance of Peter, they can be equally explained through a naturalistic explanation. But the appearance to the 12 alone, isolates, uh, isolated, can warrant the resurrection. And then on top of that, you also have a cumulative type argument as well. So double yeah. warrant. For, that's what I think. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're right, Dale. Dale, that... Dale, how many phone calls did the appearance <laughs> of the 12 occupy? We spent a lot of time on the appearance of the 12. And I think I would agree with you that it is the strongest of the multiply attested appearances without even any question. Awesome. Yeah. All right. And so, oh, sorry, dude. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask Gary a quick question, sure, kind of to break the ice and everything. My friend... <laughs> got wind that I was going to be coming on with you, Gary, and he wanted me to ask you a question. It was, what do, what do you think about the actor that played you in The Case for Christ? <laughs> you know what's funny, guys? Lee Strobel was here at Liberty just a few days ago. Okay. And I spent I spent a half day called him and said, oh, you, I know you, you're going to want to go up here and see him. And some of them were still under the view that the movie was true and that Dave – you, here's how they invited me, the people of Liberty. Hey, you got to come up here because we know you and Bill Craig were real instrumental in Lee's conversion. Well, actually, we weren't, but that's the way they did it in the movie. And Lee didn't run that movie, so the way he explains it is Bill Craig and myself are examples of the many people with good degrees that he did interview who were – and if you said, well, I interviewed so-and-so, so-and-so, they go, who's he? Well, one of the guys he interviewed it was an MD, PhD, and they would say, "Oh, well, that's good." Well, they just broke. I think they just broke the ice by saying Habermas and and Craig, even though we came later. So we were just with them, and so that came up with the students up at Liberty, and they said, "Hey, what about that guy that played you?" I said, "Man, <laughs> younger." Of course, Lee was converted. I was younger. Yeah, Lee was younger. Lee's my age. But the actor is younger, thinner, even though I've lost 25 pounds in, during COVID, younger, thinner, better looking, and better dressed than me. So how in the world could I object? That'd be my summary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I'm a Virginia boy too, Gary. I'm, uh, I'm in Spotsylvania. Oh, really? You're yes. there now? I am there right now. This is my well, little studio. <laughs> you, don't, you don't show it with your accent. I'm from Detroit. Yeah, I'm from Detroit all my life, but well, not all my life. I started my early life there for whatever twenty something years, and and um, now I'm here. So I'm a transplant of Virginia, and I am happy to be in in Virginia. So yeah, and Lynchburg's beautiful. It is. It is beautiful. Beautiful. Yep. To speak a little bit about the Shroud of Turin, so I know that David Russell has has recently done a show with our our friend, mutual friend Teddy, uh, on the Shroud of Turin. So he. But yeah, like what, what do you think the role of the Shroud of Turin could play in, in relation to the resurrection evidence or something like that? Well, since we already compared it to the, to the um, NDEs, 
I'm not talking percentages. I'm just talking as two extraneous arguments that are not part of the historical minimal facts, as I would say. Other people are going to use reliability argument. That's that's fine. Um, you know, Craig Blomberg might use a general reliability argument. I mean, I mean you know, go for it. But um, outside of the normal parameters of reliability slash minimal facts, and by the way, it's it's uh, Lydia McGrew, who's she thinks the minimal facts argument's okay, but she's not crazy about it. It's Lydia McGrew who recently said it's almost totally taken over the field and the way to argue for resurrection, it's the minimal facts way is, is hook, line, and sinker for most people. But putting that aside and saying the shroud and NDEs would be two ballpark things that would come in, because if there is an afterlife NDEs, you should be more open to resurrection and shroud because it's direct. Okay, if you put those two together, I'd say, I'd say NDEs are stronger in the shroud. I'm going to upset a lot of people in the shroud crowd, as they're called, that I'm constantly in contact with. But going to take a, a broker is going to take a contract hit on you. But what I would say is the benefit of the shroud that you don't get with NDEs is that you, if you're successful in your argument that this is an authentic document, the man in the shroud is most likely Jesus. And by the way, that argument is due to the fact, the way I always say it is, if your son or daughter comes home from school and says, hey, I'm going to do a report on school on crucifixion, where should I go? I suppose I should go to the Gospels, right? I'd say, depends on what you want to do. Are you doing Jesus' crucifixion or crucifixion? Oh, no, just general crucifixion. Well, then you might want to go to the Gospels, but that's not general crucifixion. Jesus had a lot of things done to him that were not normally not normal crucifixion procedure. I mean, if, if the Gospels are accurate, for example, why do you put a crown of thorns on a known criminal who you're going to kill? And they go, oh, well, I can explain that. That's because he claimed to be the Messiah, dot, dot, dot. I, I don't say there's no reason for doing it. I'm saying that's not normal crucifixion procedure. But the guy in the cloth was crucified the same way within very small parameters, crucified the same way Jesus was. So if you get far enough to say, A, it's authentic, B, it's probably Jesus. I think, and I've told, I've told the leading shroud researchers who disagree with me and are not Christians, I have said to them, I don't know once you concede authenticity and identity of Jesus, I don't know, we could change the data, and that's why I'm not super high in the shroud, we could change data in the recent years, in, in future years, but right now, the predominant data seem to argue that the image is a, is a photograph, quote unquote, of something happened to the dead body of Jesus where it looks like it's kind of supernatural. And you go, why do you use the word photograph? Well, just remember, if someone breaks their arm and they're not sure it's broken, it's normal parlance to say today, yeah, my doc says I got to go to the, I've got to go to the lab and I have to get a photograph on my arm. We speak of x-rays as photographs. They're, they're a species of photograph. So there's a lot of evidence that says that the shroud image is, is two or more different kinds of of uh, radiation from a body that looks like 
Jesus's and looked like he was crucified. I would say that's the advantage over the NDEs. It's very much more specific, and it gets you to the Jesus of the hook, line, and sinker, the gospel data of deity, death, resurrection. It gets you right in that territory. Um, I think the advantage of NDEs that the data are high, more highly probable, but you don't get the Jesus. You have to you have to get like the Kalam or something. I like it better than that, but it gets you in the ballpark. And now you got to talk about which God. Okay, that's the problem with NDEs. It's not a problem. You just have to make an extra move. But that's the advantage of the shroud. If it's authentic, Jesus comes along with the deal. If that's his. If that's an X-ray from a dead body, if not, you have to start making other moves. Gotcha. All right, perfect. Yeah, and David, uh, relax. I won't ask you about the shroud unless you want to, to say something about it. But um... no, I mean, I, I agree with Gary. I, I, he said everything that I would say, basically. I mean, except he he knows more about it than I do. <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. So, yeah, just continuing on then. Um, one thing that I skipped over was. So we kind of hinted at the notion of other miracles in the Bible. So miracles, you know, that Jesus did and that sort of thing. So I remember um, I was lucky enough to kind of read uh, Graham Caltree's um, books on this and, and spoke to him by email and that. And he, he sort of confirmed there's about 22 to 24 miracles in the Bible that we can prove are probably historical events. So I, I just wanted to turn it. I'll, I'll start with you, David, if, if you're familiar with, with that at all. Do you think that there's anything outside of the resurrection that you can use to as, as part of an apologetics based on other miracles? In there? I haven't done the study myself, but I wouldn't see why not. If we are going to talk about resurrection, I, I mean, if, if I've always looked at it like this. If, if I, if, if the if it's more likely that the gospels are accurate and they're stating true statements then it's probably more probable that those miracle counts are going to be real so i that's that's kind of the position i've always held uh you know once once i came to the position <laughs> gotcha makes sense all right and what about you gary do you think there's anything uh, one comment about what david just said i'm okay with everything he said but you can do the miracles of Jesus both, since I just commented on it, you can do it both the reliability route or the minimal facts route. I do minimal facts arguments for an awful lot besides resurrection. Minimal facts for deity, minimal facts for crucifixion, miracle, uh, minimal facts for resurrection of Jesus, minimal facts for reliability. I think they're strong arguments, but you can go either way on miracles. You can do a general Craig Blomberg reliability of the New Testament. The, there's no reason not to accept these cases. But you can also, and, and, and your example there is a, is a good one, Dale. Uh, Graham Twaltree uh, and John Meyer, second volume of his Marginal Jew, they both spend about 500 pages on the miracles of Jesus, non-resurrection miracles of Jesus. Meyer is much more detailed. He's more skeptical, but they're both solid New Testament scholars. Meyer is a little rougher giving the head count. How many miracles are there? How many do you think are good? 
But if you get around the edges on what he's saying, you count the way he counts. He's at about 50%. I think that's fair. He thinks 50% of the healing and exorcism cases and 12th tree says about two thirds are evidenced. And they both say, just because I said half for Meyer, two thirds for 12th tree are evidenced. That doesn't mean the other half or one third are, not, it doesn't mean they're not true. It means we don't have solid enough evidence to show I, to say I can show that. But they all could happen. They both say that. But half for Meyer, two thirds for 12, three approximately. And you can do a minimal facts argument because some of them are highly attested. I mean, with three and four criteria in favor of that miracle uh, alone, with that specific miracle. And that's how you get uh, specific miracles. In fact, Meyer is very good at saying something like, well, this, this miracle is embarrassing. This account is embarrassing. But, he says, we're still in the same account. And here's a second aspect of it. He'll find three embarrassing aspects, two embarrassing aspects. They're different aspects. They count for two, but they're in the same pericope. They're in the same account. So maybe Jesus says something embarrassing, and the leaders say something embarrassing. So there's multiple criteria to back these up. And that's why Marcus Borg says, amazingly, he says it more than once, the co-founder of the Jesus Seminar passed away a few years ago. Marcus Borg says, I don't know where you are worldview-wise, but he says it is virtually indisputable. I think those are his words. Virtually indisputable that on the basis of the historical data, Jesus was at least a healer and an exorcist. And by that they mean Meyer and, and I think Borg too, but Meyer and 12th Tree. What they mean is, Either the case as described in the Gospels happened, or one just like it. That case is well represented. Uh, so that's where they're coming. And, and I have seen comments from uh, critical scholars, Dale, many, who say, I saw one guy who put the number at 100%. He said, all critical scholars today can see these. One more thing, the category that they have the most trouble with are the so-called nature miracles. Jesus walked on water. He multiplied the loaves and the fish into food. Of course, as John Dominic Crossan says, the greatest nature miracle is the resurrection. But we're not counting that. Uh, raising Lazarus. And so Borg says, well, Jesus was a very special person. Could he have raised Lazarus? We've only got one source for that. And it's John. Cry out loud. We're source. He said, Actually, there's some good reasons here. And he and I think Graham 1232, they decide positively for all three raisings, not Jesus's raisings, but the three that he does, raising other people, they say all three of them are probable to some extent. So that means healer, exorcist, and nature. Although Meyer hates the term nature miracles. He does think all three raisings are, are probable. So that, I think that's a way to do a minimal facts 
Jesus did miracles argument. Awesome. Yeah, I, I agree too. I, I think that this is fruitful ground. I, I definitely take that the, the biblical scholarship is there in terms of proving the historical facts on some of these other miracles. I think that personally, I think that more work needs to be done on the explanatory end. Okay, so these are the facts. Can we, how do we explain these and prove in the same way that we do with the resurrection? That, you know, like the way you guys argue that hallucinations don't explain it or this or that don't. Um, yeah, I think that's fruitful ground to, to adopt that. And okay, how do we explain these facts? And can we prove that God it has to be involved in the same way we do with the resurrection. So awesome. All right. Um, so I hear my skeptical skeptics in the, the audience at this point. I, I want to ask this question because uh, I skipped over it um, out of time, but I think this is really important. There, there are arguments that atheists will offer in favor of naturalism. And we've been sort of avoiding that. So, so for example, I've heard some skeptics will argue that look, even if God exists, uh, God's modus operandi is not to do miracles because look at the, every, billions of people die, they don't raise from the dead. God isn't doing miracles all the time. So therefore the prior probability would state that it's very improbable God would ever do a miracle. Uh, and some skeptics even try to argue that well, the laws of nature are, are necessary. You can't violate the law of nature. So I just want to sort of get your guys' opinion on, on skeptical arguments that they think are in favor of the truth of naturalism. Uh, starting with you, David, what, what do you think of these types of things? Well, I mean, they assume, I, I was just talking to a guy today, that they, they assume that naturalism's true on the outset. So, I mean, their presupposition is against it. I, I haven't found any good argument that can really refute the idea of miracles. I mean, if we're going down the 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 road as Coco calls it are going at like in a plane and, and using a part of our apologetics and we get to the point where if God exists and it's more probable that God exists, then miracles are possible. I, I, I don't, I don't wiggle on that area because I, I don't think you can. <laughs> so I, I, when you come to the specific question about, you know, violations of, you know, or, the way you just described it yeah i think that it comes back to you know if god is if god is true and, and more probably probably true and we have like the near-death experience we have other miracle claims and stuff like that and if they're well documented then i, I mean where are they coming from you know i, I where where's the justification for their skepticism well said well said all right yeah gary i'll, I'll let you get the the final word on on that like what do you think what do you make of skeptical arguments that purport to say prove that naturalism is in fact true um, such as the ones i mentioned um <laughs> they're going to expect me to say this but i'll i'll give a caveat um i don't think much of them um i think the two arguments you're going to hear most frequently are going to be evolution, atheistic evolution, and evil, the two E's. I think evil backfires. I can only be very brief here, but I think evil backfires. Guys, when I was a skeptic, I 
this isn't known much about me, but I used to debate Christians. Had a confrontation with one of them in a rough area of Detroit, and uh, the guy was pretty upset with me and told me that because I was denying inspiration in the New Testament, that he told me that I had seven demons in me, and he was ticked, and he was a big guy, and I thought, yeah, this could be a fight, that feeling you have yeah. when you grow up in those kind of contexts. <clears throat> I'm saying back in those days, when I would argue with people about inspiration, having rejected it, um, at least the narrow views, um, I never was impressed as a skeptic. I was never impressed with the argument, any evil or suffering argument, because there were too many outs. The theists had too much wiggle room. And I published some articles. I can just say they're on my website, GaryHabermas.com. There are other places. There are some other research sites where this is. And I have two arguments. One of them is called Atheism and Evil, a Fatal Dilemma. And I argue that atheists are in more hot water than Christians are. This would be the equivalent of you telling somebody, hey, I know resurrection's your biggest argument, but what if I argued, this is skeptic now, what if I argued that the resurrection counts more against Christianity than it counts for it? What if I took your biggest argument away from you? If the guy had a good argument, that'd be scary, right? Theoretically, if you can pull it off. But that's what happens. I think we take evil away from them in a number of ways. And I think it's really rough for them. Um, on evolution, I think all atheistic evolution questions are, are question begging. And they're question begging because if the, if the majority of scholars today out of my field, but I, a friend interviewed, a friend of mine interviewed one of the, you'd all know the, I mean, the, the name, I just don't want to, it was an email, so I don't want to say anybody said something. But I had the guy, he asked one of the best known atheist scientists, very big name in the world, who's in, he's a cosmologist. He asked the guy, in spite of Richard Carrier and people saying, um, well, not everybody believes that everything started the Big Bang. Francis Schaeffer used to call it time plus chance plus the impersonal. Not everything started there. Maybe there's all multi multiverse. Maybe there's this, maybe there's that. This guy told, and I, I have the, uh, the email again, he said, yes, the majority of cosmologists, physicists, I don't care what incredible universities they teach at, they think that time, matter, everything came to existence of the Big Bang. Since it is generally taken to be true that, as C.S. Lewis says, if there ever was a time when nothing existed, nothing would exist now. Since most people think that from nothing, nothing comes, since most people would be a little bit, I think, understanding of Antony Flew's three major arguments for why he became a theist slash deist, A, 
Aristotle's cosmology, why is there something rather than nothing? And the other things that go with that too. Why are there laws of nature that always work instead of uh, two plus two equals four today and two plus two equals 47 tomorrow? And thirdly, intelligent design. Those were Flew's three major arguments. If you're just gonna start and assume laws and assume a universe and just assume, that's an illegitimate starting point. But a point in time begs the question about whether there's a, a what was the cause of the Big Bang? So I think evolution, this person could be the most ardent evolutionist in the world, not have a cause, stick God before the evolutionary process, and you don't hurt science at all. In fact, um, again, I don't want to use a name because it was told me personally, <clears throat> but one of the top cosmologists, this guy's a Christian, <clears throat> one of the top cosmologists in the world told me about three years ago, he reads everything. And he said he has not read an astrophysicist in the previous few years who either hasn't become a deist or at least allows the possibility of, a, of deism. And I said, how about so-and-so? And I listed the guy that I considered probably the best known radical atheist cosmologist in the world. And he said, him too. He just recently conceded the possibility of deism. So I think if those are your two best arguments, evolution, stick out at the beginning, you got everything, you can't rule it out. You can think the arguments are bad, but you can't object to them putting a step before the process. Number two, evil. I would dispute any of these guys that the atheist is at least as much trouble, if not more, doing it. If that's their resurrection arguments, David's right. You start and stand on a presupposition. But empirical data, I'll be bold, you don't have it. Awesome. All right. All right. So I think, yeah, I think that should do it for, for the interview. Um, uh, any any last things that either of you wanted to, to mention just before we close out or think we covered it? Uh, I think we covered everything. <laughs> Dale, great. A lot of territory. Good interview. And and if, if somebody didn't, this is on behalf of you, Dale. I think if somebody wasn't making the point, Dale, you started with saying this is about naturalism. You ended with saying, what do we do about naturalism? So you brought a full circle. If pe people might have heard, and all I heard in the middle was a bunch of mush about Christianity. <clears throat> well, that's not true. Our point is, this is my, my, my one-minute summary, would be if you've got the evidence comes in at a bunch of angles, but if you want just a couple of conglomerate points, David, I totally agree with his point about cumulative case. Mm -hmm. If you say, good arguments for God, oh, you don't like that? What do you like, science? ID. Oh, you hate ID? You know, you know. to me, it seems like ID is the most hated argument for God because it claims to be scientific. And yet, how come cosmologists are being converted by it? Ask yourself that. That's probably why it's hated. So 
Arguments for God, I'm going to give kudos to ID only because it plays their game of science. Secondly, Bertrand Russell, second argument, afterlife. Yep, you're losing on that one too. Third, general Christianity. We haven't talked about reliability in the New Testament, but if Jesus did miracles, other ones, and even the Mar of Marcus Borgs of the world, huge skeptics, atheists, atheist New Testament scholars who can see Jesus did these things. Figure that one out. And atheist scholars like Bart Ehrman, who say that we have reports. Uh, Gert Ludeman, Bart Ehrman, two, I believe both would call themselves atheist New Testament scholars. Both say we have resurrection reports of appearances immediately after the events and previous to Paul's conversion on the way to Damascus. Paul did not found Christianity because the data are there early. You put these together, God, for the scientists, special emphasis on ID. You can go to any other one you want, but most of them don't trust, many of them don't trust philosophy. Um, miracles of Jesus, life after death, resurrection, I think naturalism is the odd man out today. In fact, I think naturalism is the odd man out from NDEs alone. I've said it many times. Indi the Buddhist can stand shoulder to shoulder with the Hindu, with the Jew, with the Christian, with the Muslim, and say, we have a lot of disagreements, but one thing we disagree, one thing we accept, if they accept NDEs, the ones that do, if they do, they say, there's one thing we accept, naturalism's a goner. And if you put that in the one with the cosmologist just a few moments ago where I said he's not read any cosmologist in the last few years who don't concede at least the possibility of deism, I think naturalism's losing ground. And I think the surveys, even surveys that emphasize people with advanced degrees, surveys tell you these arguments are having a big change in our society. Yes, people aren't going to church so much anymore, but the surveys also say they're more religious than they used to be. So I think naturalism's the weak sister here in this whole conversation. I know that's strong, but you got to refute the data. Yeah, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> Type. What, what, what's that, Dale? I was just, uh, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> so, I don't know if you know the show or not, but David got it. <laughs> I, I, di I didn't get it, but anyway, it sounded funny. <laughs> Perfect. So, so yeah, I just want to say thank you guys so much for, for taking the time to come on. Gary, it's always awesome speaking to you. And David, every time I've, I've had a chance to work with you, it's been awesome. So I hope both of you guys enjoyed your time on your end. Yep. Thanks for having us. Dale, very good time. Very good interview. Excellent. Yeah, I'm always happy when my guests are happy and feel that they got to share what they thought was important. So awesome. Yeah, I wish you guys a, a great week and uh, have, have a good day. All right. Thanks, Thanks Dale. Thanks, Dale.